What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Stories on This Week in FCPA include environmental crime enforcement under the Biden administration, Jason Myers on what the Masters means to him, policies and procedures are not enough in compliance, the PCAOB charged with a discrimination lawsuit, what's the role of AI in compliance? What is audit field work and why is it important? The DOJ increase in cross-border enforcement under the Biden administration? Is moral leadership an art? Is the FTC gearing up on enforcement? And more on ESG. All these stories, podcasts, events, and a special guest, all on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for another episode of This Week in FCPA for the week ending, April 16, 2021, the Impact 2021 edition. As Gary Gensler has confirmed to chair of the SEC, we are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eye. Uh, A little bit later, we're going to be joined by special guest, Pat Harned, who is here to talk about the upcoming ECI Impact 2021 and hopefully with uh, a surprise and special announcement. So, Jay, uh, what say you? I say let's get into the stories and bring on Pat. All right. Well, uh, Jay, we're going to open with a story from our good friend and colleague, uh, Mr. Mike Volkoff. He of the Volkoff Law Group, where he wrote uh, this past week. uh, First of all, you need to check out his new website. He's got a new color scheme. Uh, I can't tell if it's American, Francais, or something else, but very bold. Thank you, Mike. Uh, At any rate, he talks about environmental crime enforcement. And um, I had either not known or had forgotten that Mike had uh, prosecuted crimes on behalf of the uh, EPA as part of his uh, prosecutorial career. But he says that the Biden administration has a number of enforcement priorities and uh, Protection of the uh, environment through the enforcement of environmental laws is going to be one of those. There's been a um, obviously a, a pretty draconian cut uh, during the Trump era, but the uh, ECS or Environmental Crimes Section is staffed with around 45 prosecutors who lead their own criminal investigations and work with AUSAs in the 94 districts across the country. There are approximately 300 special EPA agents uh, assigned to the ECS, and that given the the priority of the Biden administration, uh, clean air, clean water, resource conservation, uh, all are important initiatives that have been around a long time, and that he fully expects a large number or larger number of um, environmental crime prosecutions. Uh, So, uh, once again, with uh, environmental laws, uh, a compliance program is 
certainly uh, necessary. Here you only need to look at Carnival Cruise Line and to see the trouble they got into for their environmental uh, crimes with an extraordinarily robust monitorship in place and a very um, disgruntled U.S. federal judge over the actions of Carnival and not taking their uh, plea agreement seriously. And, of course, um, that led to uh, some pretty harsh words from the court, and I think finally Carnival got the message. But you can have a monitor for environmental crimes uh, similar to uh, the FCPA or anti-robbery and anti-corruption, and Mike expects that to uh, increase, Jay. Okay, Tom, uh, next up, something uh, two weeks in a row, we're checking in with Jason Meyer, who published this, self-published on LinkedIn, and Jason talks about the legacy of the Masters. Last week was the 20th anniversary of Tiger Woods' 2001 win at the Masters, which means to Jason Meyer that he also marked the 20th anniversary of his father's death. Sylvain H. Meyer actually died on April 8th of 2001, but to his family, his Yorkshire or Day of Remembrance is Masters Sunday, and that's because Jason's dad passed away in his Georgia mountain home just an hour after he watched Tiger on TV win his second green jacket that was poetic in two ways. The Masters was one of Jason's dad's favorite times and places. Starting in the 1940s, he and 10 or so of his North Georgia buddies would travel across the state to spend Masters Week in Augusta. They called themselves the Chicken Pluckers, and they'd rent a house, play golf most mornings, go to the tournament in the afternoon, and at night fall asleep earlier than they had planned to. They weren't wealthy. They were the greatest generation guys doing all right. His dad cooked dinners, which was amazing to Jason because he pretty much never cooked at home. And in 1984, when Jason was in law school, one of the regular chicken pluckers couldn't make it, and he was invited to make the pilgrimage. It remains one of his most cherished memories with his dad, the staggering beauty of the course, the cordial chats of the players, and a full kitchens of ruffles and pecan sandies. He remembers sitting with his dad before the 14th green and a lull beneath approach shots when he softly suggested that maybe Jason ought to marry the girl he'd been dating. Unbeknownst to him, he had proposed to Tracy not 24 hours earlier, and the last 37 years have proven that dad's editorial opinion was as usual on the money. His editorial opinions are the second part. Sylvain Meyer was the first editor-in-chief of the daily newspaper in Gainesville, Georgia. Throughout the 50s and the 60s, he covered civil rights movement, advocated and editorialized for integration. He was one of a cadre of Southern newspaper journalists, mostly Jewish, speaking up for the cause. They did so because it was right and just, but also, I think, out of loyalty to their region to build a new South. Still, the legacy of segregation created some cognitive dissonance for his dad when it came to Augusta National, something Jason feels again about his native state this spring. So when Tiger Woods became the first black man to win the Masters in 1997, it was a thrilling victory to Jason's dad. And when Tiger cemented the Augusta immortality by winning again and capping the Tiger Slam on the Sunday 20 years ago, maybe it felt to his dad like vindicating time to close the loop. In his dad's honor, Jason religiously watches the Masters, and he smiled this week in Augusta when they invited 86-year-old Lee Elder, who broke the color barrier at the Masters, to be the honorary starter. 
It was a small reassurance that the arc of moral universe does indeed bend towards justice, but that our institutions may need a little love, help, and patience to get there. From critics like Jason's dad, and for those of us who work to guide our organization to ethics, compliance, and doing the right thing. Oh, Jay. Uh, next up, we have a story about, actually, what makes this story the most interesting, I think, is it's from Klaus Mutzmeier. And that's a name, I think, familiar to many uh, compliance and ethics practitioners. He's a former CCO at Siemens, and now he's the CCO at uh, Novartis. And he wrote an article based upon the FCPA blog featuring the Novartis anti-bribery policy as a part of a representative or respective benchmark series. But Klaus makes clear that the policies and procedures, while the backbone of a compliance program, don't flesh it out. First, he says it should be linked to your code of ethics, which is the moral constitution of your company. Second, you should use behavioral science, data science, and decision science to help drive the uh, employee's decisions. And you as a compliance practitioner need to employ those tools. Uh, third is culture, and that culture is uh, obviously uh, the most important part or one of the most important parts. We did a podcast with your colleagues, Vin DeCiani and Eric Feldman, on that topic this week for the Compliance Handbook. And then fourth is about measurement. And what is perhaps most interesting about this, Jay, is who the author is. And once again, Klaus Moosmeyer. And uh, I think that uh, his stature in the compliance community adds weight uh, to this, particularly since uh, the FCPA blog published their policies and procedures so that everyone can benchmark about it. But I think, uh, Jay, if I could talk a little bit about what your colleagues talked about it, it's it's not the written word, it's the action. And without action, there's really nothing. Uh, there's no one size fits all, and it has to be tailored for the individual program. So I thought it was uh, really interesting for him to really put some flesh around policies and procedures, recognizing the importance of that structural backbone, but also recognizing you really need to uh, flesh it out as well. So thanks to Klaus for that article. Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we've got an article from a good friend of the podcast, Aaron Nicodemus, at Compliance Week. And the headline is, XPCAOB Risk Officer Files Lawsuit Alleging Harassment and Discrimination. The former chief risk officer of the PCAOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, said she was subjected to a campaign of harassment and discrimination before she was unlawfully fired because she is Chinese and a supporter of the Democratic Party. Sue Lee was appointed the PCAOB's first chief risk officer in February of 2019, promoted to serve as the board's acting chief administrative officer in July of that year, and named permanently to the position in late 2019. But in February 2020, just as the gravity of the coronavirus pandemic was becoming clear, Lee claims that PCAOB chair William Dunkey III her direct superior, began a xenophobic and racist campaign against her. According to the lawsuit, the PCAOB and Dunkey unlawfully fired her in October of 2020 on the basis of her Asian ethnicity, Chinese national origin, and political affiliation with the De Democratic Party in violation of the D.C. Human Rights Act. 
Lee is seeking back pay, pay and damages as part of the lawsuit, which names both the PCAOB and Dunkey as defendants. A spokes, spokesperson for the organization claimed Lee's claims are baseless. Starting in February 2020, Lee said, Dunkey began referring to the pandemic as the Kung flu and the Chinese flu in her presence and making frequent remarks to her and other employees about the Chinese ancestry and overseas birth. Lisa's donkey also objected to her to support objected to her support of the Democratic Party and Black Lives Matters movement and alleged he and alleged he favored replacing liberal staff members with those who were more conservative. Dunkey also called the PCAOB a frivolous organization that he felt should be complying with the SEC, which oversees it, according to the lawsuit. Lee said a part of her duties as chief administrative officer was that she was required to travel to Boston to oversee the regional office's move from expensive city office space to cheaper suburban space. The Boston regional office, along with four other offices, were later closed with all employees working remotely as part of the plan to reduce employee exposure to COVID-19. Lee said the moves were made with the approval of the PCAOB and Dunkey. The firing was conducted in violation of the organization's policies and procedures, Lee said in her lawsuit, which was in stark contrast to the way the organization treated other senior employees. According to the PCAOB spokesperson, the PCAOB's Office of Internal Oversight and Performance Assurance thoroughly investigated Lee's performance, and she was fired, quote, after consultation with the full five-member board, unquote. Back to you, Tom. You know, what do you expect with idiots from the Trump administration uh, firing uh, the people who actually know something? No surprise there. It's only a surprise we haven't seen more of those lawsuits. Uh, next up, from Shirty Shaw and Jonathan Rush, we have uh, an article in the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog about their new, um, uh, the Coalition for Integrities, rather, new guidance on using machine learning for anti-corruption risk and compliance. And they pose a series of questions in this article. We, of course, link to this article as well as all the other articles we reference and in the article, it has the link to the full uh, uh, article or, or white paper from the uh, Coalition for Integrity. So I would urge you to check it out. It's well worth your time to reading. But what is the business for anti-corruption, business case for anti-corruption machine learning? Should you develop, uh, how should you develop a solution? What are some of the issues? These are all uh, some of the topics raised in this article and, of course, are more uh fully fleshed out in the Coalition for Integrity's white paper on this, but I would urge you to check it out. It really gives you a sense of some of the uh, background or maybe even philosophical questions you need to ask about moving towards not simply data analytics, but really machine learning and, and moving to an AI. And as that becomes more important in the compliance space, uh, we're going to have to start thinking more about the ethics of that going forward. Jay? Uh, next up, we're going to ask the question, what is audit fieldwork? And the answer comes from Dr. Hernan Murdoch and the Experts League um, blog. Uh, fieldwork within and outside the organization. Fieldwork is the second of three phases of internal audits. During this phase, the focus is primarily on testing transactions by selecting a sample and examining those items to verify conditions and practices. Another approach is to test all relevant transactions through data analytics. 
by testing the entire population, <clears throat> editors, excuse me, auditors get a comprehensive view of the dynamics within an organization's programs and processes, and thus can better determine what is and what is not happening. The work performed during field work can be viewed as an experiment where the internal auditor is attempting to answer three important questions. One is the unit program or process making satisfactory process progress towards the achievement of its objectives. Two are the controls present and functioning. And three are key risks occurring to the detriment of stakeholders. Disgusting findings with audit clients. It's very important that internal auditors discuss findings with their clients during field work to verify the accuracy of the auditor's results and obtain managers, management's agreement. By bringing findings and concerns to the client's attention, internal auditors can get timely feedback, discuss the methodology used, and help management begin the process of preparing corrective actions. By getting agreement during field work, the exit meeting and the draft report should receive greater acceptance rather than the audit team getting bogged down in debates and discussions at that point. Status updates. The fieldwork phase is also characterized by status updates to the client. Typical topics in an update include activities performed, what the auditors reviewed and the results, activities in progress, what's ongoing, activities planned, what procedures are planned in the near future, and last, findings, discuss new observations to confirm agreement and management. Auditing outsourced activities include IT services, transaction processing, customer service, help desk services, accounting and financial activities, and human resources activities like healthcare benefits. These reports are designed to provide information about the controls at a service organization relevant to security availability, and processing integrity of systems the service organization uses to process user data, data and confidentially and privacy on the information processed by these systems. The internal auditors should remind management, if management doesn't already know, that the organization can outsource the process, but the contracting organization retains risks. Make sure to review subcontracting, subcontracting arrangements well. The contract should be clear about subcontracting expectations and restrictions, compliance with laws and regulations like the FCPA, the UK Bribery Act, and Code of Ethics. Fieldwork testing is key to providing reasonable assurance to audit clients. Looking carefully within the organization is common, but evaluating the conditions and work of business partners is also important to provide reasonable assurance to stakeholders. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, uh, next up we have an article from Corporate Compliance Insights by John New, Patrick Campbell, and Victoria Stork. And they take a look at perhaps increased enforcement from the Biden administration, but from a little bit different angle than uh, some of the other pieces we've seen, and that is cross-border enforcement issues uh, and cross-border enforcement increases. Everyone's obviously aware of the cross-border implications of the FCPA, but their article takes it a step further and points out that uh, President Biden actually sees corruption as many of the uh, underlying ills um, of society. And the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, sees it as a national security issue. So we see from the tone at the very highest of the Biden administration concerns with corruption and an increase, uh, a re-emphasis rather on 
cooperation with uh, enforcement agencies in other countries, but it's broader than the FCPA. It also includes uh, the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Rewards Act and uh, sanctions. Uh, We just had a new round of sanctions issued today by the Biden administration on Russia for their solar winds hack and their attempts to uh, infiltrate and uh, screw up the U.S. elections. Um, We uh, previously had sanctions against China for the Uyghur genocide. Uh, We've also had um, some specific uh, items related to uh, financial institutions as part of this cross-border initiative. And then they prescribe what some of the uh, compliance officers need to look at uh, in terms of uh, the basics of your compliance program, but uh, your risk assessment. And Jahir Jay, they point to uh, the risks have changed. And the DOJ told us last June that when your risks change, you need to reassess those risks via a new risk assessment. And we've certainly had risks change in this area of cross-border enforcement. Another area that I found really interesting was in drug enforcement, because they see this as also a national security issue. And here they're going after the uh, brother of the president of Honduras. So some really interesting viewpoints on increased enforcement from the Biden administration. And I really like this very large macro view, Jay. And I think, uh, or early, I hope compliance practitioners will think about the different touch points their organization may have in terms of laws that could be violated and could be subject to uh, cross-border enforcement. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Next up, we ask, is moral leadership an art? Uh, Brett Beasley writes about this and the Notre Dame Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership blog. Leaders, uh, rather, is ethical leadership an art? Leaders who want to do the right thing can help find, find help from an unlikely source, the imagination. Most of us are comfortable saying that leadership is an art. But what about ethical leadership? Is that an art too? When we think of someone who is moral, ethical, or virtuous, we tend to think of an unimaginative rule follower. Mention artists on one hand, and we conjure up an image of someone who colors outside the line, both in their work and their life. Somebody like Jackson Pollock, for example. To investigate the relationship between ethics and creativity, Sajin Kim at Portland State devised a series of experiments. Kim and her team surveyed and tracked groups of college students and food service workers, measuring participants' creativity and unethical behaviors. They observed that creativity was not an ethics liability. In fact, for many people, it proved to be an asset. The people who engaged in the least unethical behavior had a unique combination of both creativity and moral identity. So what is moral imagination? Moral imagination, it's not a new idea. As far back as our oldest written artifacts, we can find evidence that human beings used imaginative tales, practices, and images to convey moral messages. Students in Notre Dame's Meyer Business on Frontlines program rely on moral imagination in some of the most challenging situations at all in countries struggling with deep conflicts and poverty. These students use an approach to moral imagination developed by longtime Notre Dame Peace Studies professor John Paul Lederach. He became convinced that, quote, violence is the behavior of someone incapable of imagining other solutions to the problems at hand, 
close quote. More imagination, he found, was the key that could unlock conciliation and transformation. Research suggests that moral imagination can help each of us handle three persistent features of the business world. Conflict. A person with moral imagination can empathize with others to find the possibility of cooperation where others might only see conflict. Calculative mindsets. Researchers suggest that a person with moral imagination is able to generate new, insightful solutions to ethical dilemmas. dilemmas. And three, uncertainty. People who practice moral imagination are better equipped to make ethical decisions when facing uncertainty and ambiguity. Letterac offers several practices to help us build our own moral imagination. First, interdependence. Conflicts and competition can cause us to see others in narrow terms as adversaries, not allies. Ethical leaders need to acknowledge their interdependence with others. Curiosity. A person with moral imagination knows there is always more to every story than first meets the eye. Creativity. When we make decisions, we often choose from a narrow, originally defined range of choices. But a person with moral imagination knows that there exist untold possibilities capable at any moment to move beyond narrow parameters. And finally, risk. If more imagination is not easy, neither is it safe. It involves vulnerability and the willingness to step into the unknown. For too long, we have allowed words like moral, ethical, and virtuous to become synonymous for stale, boring, and dry. But by recognizing the role of moral imagination, we can begin to reclaim the idea that a virtuous leader is much more like a virtuoso. Tom? Jay, we continue our theme of increased enforcement under the Biden administration with an article from our good friend Jacqueline Jagger over at Compliance Week, where she talks about the FTC is gearing up for aggressive oversight of antitrust and mergers and acquisitions, and that she sees a broader merger review coming and uh, from the FTC, as well as perhaps anti-competitive uh, legislation from Congress. And she, then she points to really the compliance response, which is compliance needs to be uh, not only more involved in the pre-acquisition due diligence, but now you really have to be careful about your motives for your merger and how you write it up in any perspectives. If you say something um, uh, like uh, Facebook did that, well, we bought this company to kill off the competition, uh, that's not going to be favorably viewed by the regulators. So when Mark Zuckerberg says, well, we need to buy them out to uh, so we don't have to compete against them, that's that's not a good thing to document. That is not document, document, document. So uh, we've we've really uh, kind of run the gamut here, Jay, with um, articles about increased enforcement, like Volkoff environmental enforcement, uh, cross-border enforcement from John New and uh, Patrick Campbell. And now we have uh, Jacqueline uh, Jager talking about FTC enforcement. I'm seeing a clear theme, Jay, and that's increased enforcement. And when you have increased enforcement, that means you need to have increased compliance. So I hope our compliance practitioners who are listening to this podcast really will take that message to heart and then once again take the message that the DOJ told us last June, which is when your risks change, do a risk assessment. Well, if you uh, do business or have transactions in any of those areas, your risks have changed Started starting January 21st. So uh, please take that message to heart. Uh, do a new risk assessment, see if you have any risk, and then 
move to uh, either close the gap through um, remediate if necessary, or uh, put more resources into the areas where higher risks have occurred so that you have an appropriate risk management strategy. Jay, you want to take us home for our last article? Yeah. So this comes to us from a good friend of the podcast, Jonathan T. Marks, and his always fascinating board and fraud blog. And this week, Jonathan talks about environmental, social, and governance, or ESG. ESG criteria are standards for a company's operations that socially conscious investors use to screen potential investments. Recall that on March 4th of this year, the SEC announced the creation of a climate and ESG task force in the Division of Enforcement. The ESG task force will develop initiatives to identify ESG-related misconduct proactively, but will be limited to enforcing existing disclosure requirements rather than formulating additional ESG-related disclosures. The task force will also coordinate the effective use of division resources, including using sophisticated data analysis to mine and assess registrants' information to identify potential violations. In a March 15th speech at the Center for American Progress, SEC Acting Chair Allison Heron Lee made clear that no single issue has been more pressing for her during the ensuring, than ensuring the SEC is fully engaged in confronting the risks and opportunities that climate and ESG pose. John Coates, Acting Director, Division of Cor- Corporation Finance, on March 11th, made remarks at the 33rd Annual Tulane Corporate Law Institute. He said there remains substantial debate over the precise contents and details of what ESG disclosures might or should encompass. However, he outlined seven questions about ESG disclosure that need to be answered. What disclosures are most useful? What is the right balance between principles and metrics? How much standardization can be achieved across industries? How and when should standards evolve? What is the best way to verify or provide assurance about disclosures? Where and how should disclosures be globally comparable? And where and how can disclosures be aligned with information companies already use to make such decisions? In December 2020, the SEC settled charges against the Cheesecake Factory and warned it will continue to scrutinize COVID-related disclosures to ensure that investors receive accurate, timely information. No matter how the cake is sliced, and I guess that must be Jonathan's pun, There appears to be a consensus that more aggressive enforcement is coming. So what should you do now? Here are some of his suggestions. Designate a senior member of management who will be accountable for these initiatives. Identify ESG risks and the effectiveness of internal controls. Update the enterprise-wide risk assessment to include company-specific ESG risks. Address gaps identified during the risk assessment review. Ensure the board of directors is educated and aligned. Understand the initiative can not be a paper exercise, and therefore training should be done and built into the compliance program and internal audit plan. Review disclosures to ensure that ESG issues are being reported accurately. Look at what your peers are doing. Ensure the accuracy of statements and focus. Don't let this initiative distract you from other key risks. Back to you, Tom. 
So, Jay, we have a special guest this week, and we're going to bring on, there she is, Pat Harned, a president of ECI. It's like magic. You weren't there, and now you are here. So, Pat, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on This Week in FCPA. Well, thank you, Tom. It's great to see you. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me. Hey, Pat. So, Pat, we wanted uh, you to come on to visit with uh, not only us, but our audience as well about the upcoming Impact 2021 could you uh, tell us a little bit about the highlights, some of the keynotes, uh, and what you're looking forward to? Sure, I'd be glad to. So next week is ECI's annual conference. We call it IMPACT uh, for lots of reasons, and the biggest reason of which is that we're trying to do everything we can to equip people who attend the conference to have larger impact in their organizations. So the conference goes Tuesday through Thursday of next week. Um, I think we have a terrific lineup of speakers. And let me just hit the highlights of the keynotes. One of the things we try to do with our keynote speakers is to make sure that we're talking about issues that are forefront on both the social agenda, but also for our organizations. So we're really pleased to be joined by Rady Johnson and Ashley Watson, both of whom have served in the chief compliance officer role, Rady at Pfizer, Ashley at Johnson & Johnson, um, and both of them are going to talk about their perspective of the vaccine development uh, within their organizations. But for people in the audience, I would argue the vaccine development is one of the greatest examples of collaboration and innovation in an industry, and there are a lot of lessons to be learned, and so that's what they'll be talking about. We'll also be joined by Jamie Metzel, who is a technology and healthcare futurist and also a geopolitical uh, specialist, and he's going to talk about what is next for us from a workplace perspective, the role of technology in cultures and organizations, and how practitioners can prepare their own leadership for what's ahead. Uh, we're really pleased to be joined by Debo Adegbele, who is a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Um, and he's joined by Sandra Evers-Manley, whom probably many people who are listening know is the vice president for global corporate responsibility at Northrop Grumman. Um, they are going to talk about just the the intersection of social justice and all that's going on in our world and ethics and compliance in our organizations. Northrop Grumman has done a tremendous amount of work to look at um, how they can not only be a positive influence in the social justice movement and communities around them, but within their own organizations as well. And then uh, last but not, well, actually, Tom, Larry Thompson. How can I forget Larry Thompson? Larry, former deputy attorney general, former general counsel of PepsiCo. He's the chairman of our board, so don't tell him I almost forgot him. Um, Larry is just a wealth of wisdom. And so he is going to talk about what he's seen over the years, what he's seeing now in both the ethics and compliance industry, but what's ahead in terms of enforcement and cultures and organizations. Larry's just going to be Larry, and he's always worth listening to because we take away so much from him. And then finally, 
We will have a panel that will be discussing what I think has been some groundbreaking and frightening research around trends in reporting and retaliation in workplaces. But we'll also be looking at some research done by a professor that I know, Tom, you've spoken to before, Kyle Welsh, who's an assistant professor at GW who has studied cases from uh, a prominent vendor helpline provider in our industry and found some really amazing insights about reporting patterns and what they mean for companies. That panel is Kyle Welsh from GW, uh, Greg Keating, who is a well-known whistleblower defense attorney, myself talking about ECI, and none other than Tom Fox. So we're happy to have you as part of our, our keynote lineup. Pat, I wanted to introduce a topic that my colleague, uh, Affiliated Monitors Rod Grandin and Lumen's Lisa Bethlantini Walker will be talking about, and they will be going on uh, the 20th at 3.45 p.m. Eastern Time, and they'll be talking about turning a negative into a positive ethical culture's lasting impact. Um, are there any other sessions that uh, come to mind that are notable to you, Pat? There are a couple. Thank you so much, too. We're excited to have your colleagues be a part of the agenda. Uh, we'll be having a panel that's talking about the new EU whistleblowing directive, um, how to mitigate the risk of fraud. Um, we'll be talking some about governance and partnering ENC with the governance conversation, especially in the growing ESG movement. Um, making use of technology in the current environment to improve your ethics and compliance program, and of course, the evergreen conversation about how do you create a speak-up culture. So, Pat, um, you have a special uh, offer for listeners to our podcast this week in FCPA. We're going to link to it in the show notes, but I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what it is. Sure. We are very pleased to be able to provide a 20% discount on registration for folks who are listening to this podcast. If you come to our website, which is ethics.org, and if you, you'll find a banner on the homepage, but you can also enter backslash impact. If you enter the code TOM20, we got real creative with that code, uh, you can get a discount on registration. And, and I'll also add um, as many of you know, ECI has gathered groups of practitioners as a community to develop a framework that we can use as professionals in our organizations to measure the maturity of our ethics and compliance programs. It's called the High Quality Program Framework. If you come to our conference, we are allowing all registrants to take the HQP assessment. And throughout the entire event, we will be having opportunities to share findings, share benchmarks. Some of the conversations throughout the, the event will focus on what companies are doing, where they have strengths and gaps. So that comes along with the registration as well. So Pat, I wanted to thank you for coming on and highlighting uh, the upcoming ECI Impact 2021. I cannot uh, engaged or, or really uh, uh, speak about it in any higher manner. I hope our audience will join us. It's going to be a fascinating couple of days. And the HCP part that Pat just articulated, if you are in inside in-house uh, counsel, excuse me, in-house corporate, corporate compliance, uh, this uh, ECP is, uh, HCP is a great tool and you should definitely check it out. 
It allows you to benchmark your program literally uh, uh, against those or with those across the globe. Pat, thanks so much. And uh, perhaps we could uh, ask you to come back in the future. Sounds good. I'd love to. Thanks for having me. See you next week, Pat. Okay. Well, Jay, um, we're on to podcasts and events. So Tell let me, me tell you what's about. happening in the MCU, Tom. So Megan Doherty, um, millennial MCU lover, and myself are doing a special series on the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, we were up to episode four. Uh, just a great episode. Um, lots of action, lots of psychology, lots of backstory. And we take uh, take a look at it. We'll be taking a look at episode five after it premieres on Friday. Um, this this week, I'm having a special uh, podcast series with Lextegrity, a sponsored podcast series on the most cutting-edge use of data analytics on the Compliance Podcast Network. This month on the Compliance Life, I have Jonathan Kellerman, partner at Stone Turn. And in episode two, he talks about his early professional career in healthcare compliance consulting. It's a road that uh, is not usually taken to the CCO chair, but Jonathan took it, and it's really a fascinating journey where he started out in the consulting realm and then then moved to the CCO chair. Um, Jay, this week on the Compliance Handbook, I had a, a great visit with two of your colleagues, Vin DeCiani and Eric Feldman, and um, we took a look at uh, the role of culture, and that's something AMI and, and Eric and Vin talk about a lot but we were able to, I was able to really just take a, a very almost philosophical view of the role of culture. So um, this is a video podcast as well. So uh, you can check it out on Facebook or on the audio version on the Compliance Podcast Network and others. Um, let, me, let me let Tom take a breath so he doesn't read all the events. And uh, CCI Corporate Compliance Insights is proud to release a new book. The FCPA Year in Review by our own compliance evangelist, Tom Fox. You can obtain a copy. And in the show notes, we link to a URL that says here. And Tom, here's the hard question. How much does it cost to get this book from CCI? Well, let's just say it's priced at a uh, at a level that your daughters would be comfortable with, Jay. Okay, it's so both Millie and Michaela will become ethicists after reading this. Well, they'll certainly be able to spell FCPA. All right. Next up, uh, Tom and I invite you to join us at Impact 2021, which our special guest, Pat Harnett, just spoke about. The conference will be held virtually next week, April 20th to the 22nd. And listeners of this podcast will receive a 20% discount to the event. For more info and registration, please look at the show notes and use your special promo code TOM20 for your discount. And Tom, what's the last couple of things for this uh, week? Jay, we've got a couple of uh, webinars coming up from K2 Integrity on April 22nd. They're having a um, Ask the Expert Fin Query. There's lots of FinCEN experts at K2, and they have a special uh, uh, portal, I, I guess you would call it, on their website called Dolphin, which uh, helps companies navigate FinCEN. They also have um, another... Um, webinar on uh, risks, uncovering risks through enhanced due diligence and how uh, that can assist you in a wide variety of areas from your third-party risk management to executive hires to M&A. I uh, had the chance to visit with uh, 
one of the K2 Integrity folks about uh, deep dive due diligence, and, and I learned a lot. So it was really a fascinating view. And then finally, Jay, uh, we're getting uh, closer to the release of the Compliance Handbook. It's hopefully will be released in June. That's the latest word I have from the publisher, LexisNexis. But you can get a discount via pre-sale. So we've linked to that um, as well. And I hope that uh, you'll look at the Compliance Handbook podcast. We've had the ladies from GWIC join us. Uh, previously, uh, who talked about written standards. And of course, as we mentioned, the deep dive with your AMI colleagues, Ben DeCiani and Eric Feldman. It was a, a great podcast. Uh, it's been very well received. And I would urge uh, anyone interested in really in the underpinnings of uh, theories, theories around uh, compliance to check out the podcast series. There's lots of good stuff. Great. So uh, as we said, the show notes are chock full with a lot of useful information. If we do not answer every question you have there, please feel free to reach out to Tom, who can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, and myself, Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. You can reach me at J, the initial J, R-O-S-E-N, at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 248 for the week ending April 16th, 2021, the Impact 2021 edition. Uh, We trust that you and yours will be safe. I hope you have a great weekend, and we look forward to seeing you next week when we look at this week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. Uh, please join us on our live stream on the Q&A. We'd love to interact with you. It goes up on LinkedIn and Facebook at 4 p.m. Central every Thursday. You can engage with us then. We look forward to visiting with you again next week, and thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.